Bandwidth for Changelog is provided by Fastly. Learn more at Fastly.com. We move fast and fix things here at Changelog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. And we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers. Head to Linode.com slash Changelog. This episode is brought to you by Linode, our cloud server of choice, and we're excited to share they've recently launched dedicated CPU instances. If you have build boxes, CI/CD, video encoding, machine learning, game servers, databases, data mining, or application servers that need to be full duty, 100% CPU all day, every day, then check out Linode's dedicated CPU instances. These instances are fully dedicated and shared with no one else, so there's no CPU steal or competing for these resources with other Linodes. Pricing is very competitive and starts out at 30 bucks a month. Learn more and get started at linode.com changelog. Again, linode.com changelog. From Changelog Media, this is Founders Talk, one-on-one conversations with founders, CEOs, and makers about their journey, lessons learned, and the struggles they go through to build and run their business. I'm Adam Stokoviak, host of this show and editor-in-chief of Changelog.com. Sahil Lavingia is the founder and CEO of Gumroad, a platform for creators to sell the things they make. Since 2011, Gumroad has sent over $200 million to creators. That's a big number. Sahil's ambitions led him to believe that Gumroad would one day become a billion-dollar company, yes, billion with a B, have hundreds of employees, and eventually IPO. That didn't happen. We talked through Sahil's journey with Gumroad, why it failed to meet his goals, the path he's on today, and the things he now values. But to understand why Gumroad didn't live up to his expectations, we really have to understand the backstory of Gumroad. Yeah, so Gumroad is a startup that I started in 2011. Um, I wanted to make it really easy to sell content online if you're a creator. Pretty easy to make stuff these days. It's only getting easier. And it's only getting easier to share stuff for free too, you know, with yeah. Instagram and YouTube and everything. And I just felt like there was like this weird sort of use case of actually selling the content that like didn't really exist. And it started out just as a weekend project. I just wanted to sell an icon I designed in Photoshop and just got really excited about that potential of like, it seems like a really simple thing, but the impacts of it felt like pretty broad and deep. And I love, love creators. Like I always considered myself like a person that built products and yeah, so that's Gumroad. And, and uh, I think it's sort of to your question of happiness. I think in the beginning I was all about like, I want to build Gumroad uh, into this huge company, right? Like I think I can do it. I think I'm going to learn a lot by doing so and leading a, a team of hundreds of employees or whatever it is. And I felt like it would give me opportunities either through wealth or through influence or access to people or being internet famous or whatever, that those were all sort of always my ambitions, right? Is to sort of to be an important, interesting person sort of leading an organization that is having a really large impact that everyone knows about, um, sort of like a household name. And it was going swimmingly. We raised a bunch of money. I was, it was funny. I was talking to a founder yesterday who was sort of jealous of where Gumroad was when he, he had built a sort of a tangential startup and started it, I think, a couple of years before Gumroad did. And then all of a sudden, Gumroad appears out of nowhere. And, you know, in six months, we raise just me at the time, we raise around a million dollar seed round from like all star investors. And then six months later or less, we raise seven million dollars from a top tier venture fund. And he was like, oh crap, like, you know, we're dead. Like these people are going to kill it. It's sort of filled with jealousy. And then things went well. That was 2012 um, until 2015 when we started to raise money again and realized that we just weren't 
growing the business fast enough to sort of merit another round of financing, a Series B, $30-plus million, dollars, et cetera. And so we did a big round of layoffs, got to profitable. That hit the news again, and he felt validated. He was like, ha-ha, look, the thing that they tried didn't work out. And you know they had ended up selling the company. Um, he made a few million bucks, et cetera. And I think it just goes to show that like so much I think of our egos and of our sort of self-worth like are not based on ourselves. They're based on like these other factors and like our relation to those things, mm -hmm. which I think can be pretty unhealthy because you don't, aren't really in control of those things anyways, right? And so you're actually the exact same person, but all of a sudden this person enters the room that's, you know, whatever better at than you at some specific thing, you feel like you're lesser now, even though nothing has really changed about you. And I think that's just like a pretty toxic attitude that everyone has. I think it's sort of like built into humanity, sort of our monkey brain or whatever to think like that. Our monkey brain, huh? Our monkey brain or our lizard brain potentially. Yeah, that's it. Lizard brain. <laughs> yeah, lizard brain, mammalian brain, and uh, our prefrontal cortex. Yeah. Sort of the, the three structures of the brain that we operate under. Do you study brain science then? Um, I don't study brain science as much as, as you probably do. But I do. I, yeah. I mean, I, I guess I study it. I study humans and inherently studying human beings. Is, of course. Yeah. It's going to do that. Right. That's me too. I, I'm a, a human. Yeah. A, I study humans the same. You know? Yeah. They're interesting. Interesting. And things. I'm only educated on brain science because I got a friend who's a doctor that we're doing a show. I think I mentioned it before the show. But to those listening, mm -hmm. we have a new show coming out called Brain Science which is around really brain science applied. You know, how do you better your life through a better understanding of the brain? Yeah. And we're going to tackle some interesting topics. We've already got some shows recorded, but it is in preview right now. So if you are interested, e email us at editors at changelaw.com. And uh, the subject line should be in all caps, brain science, if you're really excited about it. So that that's my short plug there. But But back to studying humans and ego and stuff like that. Take us back there. Yeah, so I think in you know we went through some some downs at that point in 2015. Shrunk the team to five, and then shrunk the team to one. Just me, you know. I, no one had joined the company to to build a lifestyle business, basically. And so yeah. I was like, I'm going to go run this thing. You know, at some point, it'll grow to a point where I can start hiring new folks again. And you know, if Gumber doesn't grow, I can shut it down. If it does, like we'll figure it out. And it ended up doing great, actually. Even though we basically didn't ship any new features for almost two years. It continued to grow, which is, you know, the power of technology, the power of software. And I think we built a solid product, you know, with venture capital. We didn't do it for free. And so in 2000, late 2017, Kleiner sent me an email, wrote off the investment um, that they had made, you know, six years ago. Our partner at the time, Mike Abbott, had left Kleiner Perkins. So they were trying to sort of, I think, just probably just readjust their books a little bit mm. and uh, sort of just took the write off, you know, for their taxes. and. That gave me this sort of like newfound, like, you know, our liquidation preferences fell from 16 and a half million to two and a half. And so all of a sudden I was like, maybe I can do something with this business. Right. And maybe this commitment that I made to this mm. investor to build it into this, you know, our valuation at the time Kleiner gave us was $28 million. So, you know, like that commitment, that promise implicit or explicit is now gone. Right. And so I felt more comfortable saying, okay, I'm going to do what I think I should do with this business, we had the profits at that point to sort of build a team out and sort of refocus on that. And I think the thing that really changed is writing this piece. I wrote this piece called Reflecting on My Failure to Build a Billion Dollar Company that did really well on Medium in February 2019. And that sort of made me, writing it, 
editing it really had sort of, I had to answer all these questions for myself, right? Like what, who, like, who am I? What am I doing? Why am I doing it? What is Gumroad? What does Gumroad want to be? What do I want to do long-term? I had to sort of start thinking about all these questions as I was writing that piece. And then the fact that it did super well, kind of like made me accountable to those decisions. You know, yeah. if I had written those, no one read it and, and, you know, I could have disappeared off into the internet That's right. um, and, and done whatever. <laughs> But unfortunately, or fortunately, it ended up doing really well. I think at this point, probably over maybe 550,000 people or something have read it. And, uh, you know, I gained a bunch of Twitter followers or, or whatever metric success there is for article writing. But yeah, I'm sort of excited about that. You know, I'm excited about people are like telling me like, hey, this is so cool. It's so cool that you shared this thing. And they're so, um, mm-hmm. you know, as, as we talked about, like, I, I'm sort of in this like reactive mode where I'm like, I'm open. I'm like, tell me, what should I do? Right. Like I have time, I have money. Um, I have this product. I can, I, I use the word vessel. I think of Gumroad as a vessel. And so what do I want to do? What do other people want to be done? Um, either by me or somebody else, you know, how can we vet and do those things? So there's a bunch of stuff that sort of I'm thinking about and, and happiness sort of to answer, I guess your original question, you know, before it was, it was about creating this billion dollar company per se and sort of all the things that tie into that. And I think now it's just like, you know, I want to build something really cool. And I want, I kind of want to just be absurdly, like, I want to, I want to build a company that just like, doesn't even look like a business. Like it's just too good <laughs> because we're not, we're just not competing on those metrics, you know? Yeah. And I think if you, if you stop competing on growth, if you stop competing on revenue, on team size, on these things that are typically used, especially in Silicon Valley to sort of gauge where you are relative to everybody else. Like, what does that look like? Yeah. You know, we just launched this thing called the Government Creators Fund where we're donating $50,000 to a bunch of creators this year. And they're not, you know, it's not huge, right? Like startups can totally blow $50,000 off and do on things. But they don't in this case because the ROI just isn't there. If you're trying to build a billion dollar company, like what is $50,000 donated to a bunch of creators do, right? Things you're doing are countercultural in a way. Yeah, I guess, yeah, I guess it's true. Countercultural is the definition, I guess, of, of, of what we're trying to figure out. But you can't compete on a platform you're not competing on, meaning that, you know, if, you know, I'm this, the billion dollar startup or whatever, or, you know, someone that's competing with you and we're, we're competing on completely different metrics. Totally. Then, then we're not really competing. Totally. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, if I'm trying to like squash you and, and you're, you don't even care, mm-hmm. you know, you're, you're happy with where you're at or thriving in these areas where you're trying to thrive at, then we're not really competing. Exactly. And so it's like how, you know, I'm, 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 I've lost the billion dollar company race, right? Like I don't even really aim for that at all anymore. Um, but what, what races can I win? You know, mm-hmm. do you see it as a loss though? Um, I mean, part of me. Yeah. That's why, I, that's why I open up with happiness because it doesn't seem like you, like you say yeah. that, but I don't feel like you live like you've lost. I, I, yeah, I don't think I live like I've lost. I mean, part, part of that is because like the, you know, it's like the game isn't over, you know? In the sense that, like, you know, typically when you lose, it means someone else has won and, like, no one has won, right? right. Like, that, I think in this, in this context, like, there's no winners and losers. There's just people that are happy and people that are not happy. Yeah. You know, and at the end of the day, life is, like, this sort of, like, pretty small thing, which is great for, you know, everything as well. It's small and also everything, I guess, depending on your faith system or whatever. But, yeah, I think, I think. To me, it's like, it's, it's just a milestone, you know? Um, and I think that's been a big shift. I think for me is that I used to think of Gumroad like my, it's, it's weird. It's, it's sort of like counterintuitive, but I think Gumroad used to be like my, my life's work, right? My magnus opus and like this thing that I wanted to do forever. And I was going to be like Steve Jobs or Bill Gates, you know, instead of Microsoft, it was Gumroad. 
And now not thinking of that, thinking of it like a stepping stone has actually like elongated my willingness to work on the thing because it gives me all this. I don't, I don't feel the stakes anymore. I'm just like, Hey, I will have this thing. I, I can do whatever I want with it. So inherently it's like, it's kind of what I want to do, you know? Yeah. Like I, I get to hire the people I want to hire. I get to work with the people I, I get to work with. I want to work with. I get to build a product that I want to build. I get to spend the money on the things that I want to spend the money on, et cetera. So you know, it's like, how do you lose compared to that, right? Like, what is a better option? And I'm sure they exist. Like, I'm sure there's people that are happier or whatever, like, than, than I am. But I think just based on where I was, I'm in a much better place. And at the end of the day, that's kind of like all you can really compare yourself to because those are the things you can control, like where you were and where you are, sort of on an internal mind state level. There's some out there that might look at where you're at and be like, what? How does he feel this way? Because, I mean, geez, I mean, building a billion-dollar company is amazing. Why wouldn't you want to do that? <laughs> and, you know, you just said obviously you didn't fail because somebody would have a, would have had to won if you lost. You know, there's there's people who, I guess, pursue what might have – this might not be the best way to say it these days, but I know it is the American dream, right, to, uh-huh. to pursue enterprise, to pursue – you know, capitalism and its healthy states to better their lives, better their families' lives and things like that. And to pursue the biggest opportunity might be the best. But I think there's people who go like you have through that journey and learn through that journey and on the other side, like, well, I thought that was my goal. Mm -hmm. But in hindsight, now that I see what I really went through, now I really truly can appreciate, you know, and, and you've said lifestyle business, nobody wants to get yeah. to get hired to build a lifestyle business to, I, I kind of feel that way about what we're doing here at change law because, you know, I resist and I want to resist. And Jared and I, we both resist this notion that we have to be huge, you know, that we have to have some sort of New York city, downtown office studios or something like that at some point, because that's mm-hmm. the next milestone. Like I reject that. I'd like to have it to be nice, but it's never going to happen. Not because we can't afford it, but because I like living in rural Texas. Jared likes living in rural Omaha, Nebraska, you know, so there's something special about the way we've rejected it. Mm-hmm. And I think we've gone through similar. We weren't trying to build a, to build a billion dollar business like you have, but there's some out there who might say, you know, Sahil, you're, you're crazy, man. You know, <laughs> Adam, you're crazy <laughs> for, for doing that. Mm-hmm. What's the lure of a lifestyle business for you now that you've kind of gone through the journey and realized this is where you're at? Yeah, well, I, I think part of it is uh, David Brooks calls this like the two, I think the two mountains where people have this sort of like American dream, this sort of enterprising attitude to life. And then they go through it, they either succeed or fail. But typically they often end up at the same place, which is like, what do I actually want to do? Like what do, you know, Bill Gates, it might be the Gates Foundation, for example, right? And things like that. And so I think it's funny because like you can talk about all this stuff, but at the end of the day, like people still have to go through sometimes that first mountain, like whatever that thing is, yeah. you know? And for me, it's like gaining a competency, gaining a reputation as someone who can build a really world-class product and, and, and things that allowed me, I think, in some capacity to do this and feel confident that I can do this. And so I think that's like important, I think, to acknowledge um, is that sometimes you can't just build, you know, go straight to building a lifestyle business because, you know, the fact of the matter is that like I have influence, um, I have fame, I have money, I have friends or whatever, I've been able to meet people that I never would have been able to do that now that I'm doing this lifestyle business thing, whatever you you wish to call it, it doesn't have all the trappings of it. I get to kind of keep some of the cool stuff that I liked about this sort of American dream, I guess, and get rid of the other stuff. 
if, if that makes sense. You know, mm-hmm. I try to think about it like it's the best of both worlds, right? Well, you're in charge, right? You're in charge and you, you're running your own show, meaning that, you know, in a venture, not that venture capital is, is wrong because it, it's great in, in many scenarios. There are many great things about venture capital, but maybe totally. in your particular case where Gumroad wasn't growing at the multiples it needed to to raise the, as you mentioned, the Series B, you know, you had become no longer uh, precious and shiny to venture capitalists because, well, you know, the nature of venture capital couldn't play well with your, you know, the way Gumroad was mm-hmm. growing. And so for those totally. reasons, you know, you were in sort of this trap because you you were forced to build a business that Gumroad wasn't evolving to be. And mm-hmm. maybe even something that made you happy even. Yeah. I mean, I think part of it is there is the, uh, I think they call it the anchoring principle where you have like a fancy menu, right? And you have some dish that's like $600 and then everything else is like 50 bucks. And what it does is it kind of like creates this context where everything else looks cheap, right? Compared to the sort of the most expensive item. Right. And I think of that like, basically people make decisions based on choices they would never actually pick, Right. Whereas really what you should do is you should make decisions based on the choices that you would actually, you actually would pick, right? Because what's the point in, you know, like there could have been a Ferrari on the menu for $600,000 that you never would have thought about, right? And so that's kind of how I like to think about it now is like, well, like what are the actual things that I have available to me and how do I pick between those things? Mm -hmm. Because I think if you start saying, hey, like if one of these options is raising $30 million, um, if one of these options is selling the company, if, you know, like. Those are going to start distorting the ways that you're actually thinking about the actual choice that you have to make instead of these sort of like macro things that you actually have no interest in, right? So getting rid of those choices, I think to me is really important to say like, I'm not going to sell the business, at least not in the next few years. I'm focused on, you know, these these things like I want to ship certain product features that I've, I've been really excited about. I want to build a team to a certain size. I want to recruit people that I wanted to try to recruit for a long period of time to see if I can do that. Um, I want to open source the product entirely. And then I can consider all those other choices. But to me, like I, to those choices are not even worth really even evaluating because I just know I'm not going to pick them anyways. And, and you're, you're going to trick your brain, I think, if you start doing that, right? Like if you start thinking about a choice, automatically you're going to start weighing it more. You just can't help mm-hmm. but not do that. Interesting. You know? And that's beneficial. I think there are times in which you want to do that, in which you want to sort of sort of artificially inflate a choice because truly you want to make it and you just, it doesn't make sense. So you kind of need to make it make sense first. Like moving to Provo, Utah for me was like that, I think, or like leaving school to go to Pinterest or, um, or leaving Pinterest to do Gumroad or whatever. But I think I'm sort of in the opposite state where it's just like, I'm happy with where I'm at. How do I maximize what I have right now? How do I really execute on these markers that we're competing on basically with nobody else, right? Like in terms of transparency, in terms of, building by far the best company for creators. Um, how do we just, how do we do that in a way that's going to help the world because they have this anchoring principle, right? They have this company that is doing all this weird stuff that they would never do, but it's going to, it's kind of like the overturn window, right? Like it's going to force change. That's the theory and the impact that we can have through forcing that change by being this sort of like ludicrous outlier um, because we're not trying to, to raise money. We're not trying to sell the business. Like the impact of that. What is the impact of that? I don't know. Maybe there's yeah. nothing. Maybe people are like, ah, whatever. There's just like that weird hippie company doing weird stuff. Like, let's ignore them. <laughs> but I'm hopeful. I think there have there are already. I think I feel like I've noticed more transparency, at least in our sort of competitors and things like that. It's like uh, the example I use often is uh, football helmets, right? Like basically everyone sort of informed on the issue like disagrees with football helmets, right? And like the danger that they have to the brain and things like that. But no one, no player is going to be like the first person to take it off, 
right? It's just sort of counter, like, to you know, they would basically, like, you, what you have to do is you have to kind of get everyone in agreement to do it at the same time or whatever that the change happens to be. Um, it's sort of like a prisoner's dilemma sort of thing, right? And that's kind of how I think about gun rights. Like, we're, we're the player that is willing to take off the helmet and to sort of create, you know, create the controversy in a sense. What's with the helmets? I'm not familiar with the details. Oh, yeah. Why are the, are the yeah. helmets? Are con- I mean, no, I know about uh, brain injuries in football and whatnot, but what's with the helmet? What's the controversy? Yeah, well, the reason the brain injuries, typically the brain injuries are, are a result of the helmets and the padding that football players wear. Um, because it sort of allows you to hit people harder than you ever nor- would without any of that sort of stuff, sort of tricking your brain into thinking that like there's not that much pain or damage oh, wow. that's going to happen. So, for example, if you look at rugby, um, I played rugby in high school. You basically have no padding. Yeah. And if you look at rugby, it looks more dangerous, right? Because like you're not wearing anything, and your like head is hitting the ground, and 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 it's sure like there are plenty of injuries in rugby for sure. I'm not saying it's a safe sport or anything like that. But if you actually look at the injury rates and, the, and sort of brain damage, things like that, it's much, 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 much lower um, because you don't have like a human, you're primal in that sense, right? Like you're, when you, when you fall or when you hit someone, you're doing it in a way that's going to protect your body um, in the best way that your body is going to be able to do that instinctually. Whereas the minute you have padding and helmets, these things that the brain sort of isn't sort of fundamentally aware of, you know, that's not an instinctual thing. It's a, it's a sort of a surface intellectual thing. Interesting. You make different decisions. You'll headbutt someone, which you would never would do in rugby. You would die. Yeah. You would go to the hospital. I like how you've, uh, how you've used this as a lens to view choices in a business though. Yeah. <laughs> because I mean, the thing that I think that makes some pretty interesting sense that, you know, in the way you're saying to trick your brain that, you know, if you've, I think in boxing as well, you know, you got these gigantic gloves on, yeah. you're going to mm-hmm. hit much harder than you might in MMA or yeah. another sport. And the way you yeah. consider the trade-offs and how, cause if I'm wearing super comfortable shoes, I man, I could run. Right. But if I've yeah. got no shoes on, I'm just flat footed. Well, I might not run quite as far because my feet will eventually hurt and my brain knows they will hurt. So it, it operates and reacts in a yeah. way that, you know, it is in line with, I guess, yeah. my equipment, yeah. you know, so to speak. Well, and you see it, you see it. I think, you know, there's all this sort of new, oh, I don't know if it's called controversy, but sort of buzz around stoic, sort of stoicism, right? And uh, uh, Jack Dorsey doing all sorts of stuff and meditation and fasting and keto. We just logged about that today, so I'm, I'm down with that. Oh, yeah? yeah, I mean, not the stoicism, uh, but I'm, yeah. I'm down with the fasting and the interesting things and yeah. the biohacks, yeah. Yeah, I think it, I no, I think it's super fascinating, but I think a lot of that just comes from this idea that like we're we're so padded, you know, especially in tech, especially if you're in San Francisco raising billions of dollars in venture cap. Yeah. I think I think there is this sort of like this this need for people that are running these companies to to get back to reality, to sort of go barefoot running, you know, because they need they need to balance out their sort of like absurd um sort of literally absurd uh, lifestyle, you know, that doesn't really have any sort of bearing in reality um, with like very, very sort of real human experience, right? Like being hungry. Um, and I, I mean, I think the world can benefit. You think that's why he's doing it? Uh, I think that plays a part. Yeah. yeah. Okay. I think so. I mean, I think there is, there is some, some of that for sure. See, I would just think of it like uh, he's in this kick of the biohackers and it's, very common for biohackers or people who are into this. They start to get into one thing. It's almost like a layered onion. You get one mm-hmm. layer and the first layer might be, you know, your wellness generally, and then maybe how fasting impacts that. 
And yeah. then how intermittent fasting or long-term fasting, you know, has regenerative properties and mm -hmm. then meditation, what that does to your overall anxiety levels in your brain to be able to control or better understand your thoughts. And yeah, the whole walking or running to work, I think it's kind of interesting because it's like, Hey, you know, that one's probably the one I would see more in your line of like, you know, the, you know, yeah. taking out the padding, so to speak. That's the weird one to me, honestly, walking to yeah. work, <laughs> you know, the fasting is the, is the normal one somewhat to me. And the yeah. seven minute workouts, I think of it like, how does a farmer work out? A farmer doesn't work out. A farmer just works. Yeah, right. Totally. And so Jack Dorsey is not a farmer. So he's got to literally go to a gym mm -hmm. or be down with seven minute workouts yeah. or getting a workout in, in yeah. any unique place. Or maybe gyms are just yeah. like anti Dorsey. Like, Hey, I'm not going to a gym. Yeah. I mean, I, th I think it's a combination, right? Like you need, you need like a motivation and then you need like a reason. And I think the motivation, the sort of the impetus is like, I feel uncomfortable with where I'm at or I feel disconnected mm. or I, you know, and then the, the reason is like, oh, there are also these sort of health benefits, I think, to doing that. Even though, you know, I, I do agree. I mean, I think like walking to work, I don't think there's sort of a downside to it. But I, I do think it's sort, sort of with biohacking, like, and I'm not super familiar, but I, you know, I would be cautious with a lot of it because there's, you know, it's, it's kind of like, I think of it like fat and carbs. Like, I feel like every, every like 10 years, like carbs are evil and then they're awesome. And then fats are evil and then they're awesome. And then proteins are evil and then they're awesome. And same thing with eggs you know, yolks and uh, coffee right. and wine, right? And so I think at the end of the day, like, it's probably net. Like, the way I think about it is if you're, if you feel pretty healthy and you're doing pretty healthy things, and you're, you're going to know, you know? And so I, th I think at the end of the day, most of it is like, you know, he could go, yeah, he could go running in a gym or running outside, but he's choosing to walk to work. Like, why is that? And I think part of that is the motivation behind, like, how do I, how do I engage with my, my monkey brain a little bit more. Right. How do I feel again? Is what you're saying. Yeah. How do I, yeah. You're sort yeah. of numbed, as you'd mentioned, like with the, you know, the absurd abilities of someone like Jack Dorsey running Twitter and doing all these different things and having yeah. what seems like to some people endless finances or endless mm -hmm. power or opportunity in anything he does or could do. So a lot yeah. of what some might consider freedom in that. Yeah. And I think what you're saying, if I understand you correctly, is he does these unique things, not so much to be weird, but to feel again. Yeah, I, th I think I think people that write him off as like a as a sort of a exhibitionist or something. Uh, to me, that's probably a shallow interpretation. Like, I, I think someone is I, I mean, I met him in person, like in a private setting. And and he wasn't you know, he had no incentive to be weird, quote unquote. And he definitely was not mm -hmm. the most normal person I've ever met. So the, I think these things are sort of true to him, you know. I don't think he's doing it because he wants an extra million Twitter followers or something like that. <laughs> he could just buy him, right? He runs the platform. Yeah, oh yeah. There's there's uh, more efficient ways to get that done. Let's talk about transitory, as you mentioned in the pre-call. You touched on it a little bit and this ability to be reactive versus proactive. What does that mean to you today? Yeah, so, you know, people typically w want to be proactive, right? Like that's like the positive word like i think the positive it's the expectation that's the way of life the yeah the po there's a positive connotation to it and reactive typically means that you're failing at something right, right. you're failing to be pro proactive therefore you are reactive i think it's sort of like the the way that we set set these two words up if, if put next to each other like that is the context that automatically appears around them and i've always been super proactive you know and sort of doing what I wanted to do and, you know, sort of the product visionary archetype where we're building the product, we're going to go raise the money, we're going to do this thing, we're going to will it to be. And I think part of it was realizing like, well, there's certain things you can't will to be. 
And, uh, you know, we were talking about how Gummer had continued to grow, right, without me really actively working on it for a while. And it gave me this sort of sense of, like, independence from Gummer because it seemed like when I was a product visionary, when I was working 12 hours a day, 16 hours a day, and when I wasn't doing any of those things, when I was just fixing bugs, it seemed like the company was growing at a roughly similar rate. And so it gave me the freedom to say, okay, like, what does this mean, right? Like, do, does it mean that I can just sort of listen to creators? Like, maybe maybe I should try that. Like, maybe I should just go the totally opposite direction of, of product visionary and just say, hey, like, actually, like, I'm not interested in building the car. Like, I actually am interested in the faster horse. Like, what do you think the faster horse is for you? And just doing that. And I think there is this attitude. I think you have to be proactive because why, why, like, why would, why would someone give you a bunch of money to be reactive to a market, right? Like venture only works in theory because you're proactive, right? Because if you're reactive, the proactive competitor is going to beat you or whatever. That's right. But I think there is like a lot of value in, in being reactive. I think there's, there are opportunities that I think I would have said uh, no to that I say yes to because I just want to see like where those doors lead. And I think. What are some examples? of things you say yes to that you would normally have said no? Um, yeah, like I'm thinking about writing a book, like a traditionally published book. Penguin Random House, after the article uh, did as well as it did, sort of reached out and offered me a book deal um, to write on similar topics. So I'm weighing that. I think I never would have considered that. I was like all in on Gumroad, and if it wasn't like 100% Gumroad, I wasn't doing it. You know, I didn't make any angel investments. I do that now a little, a little bit. I just want to do more. Like, I, I just want to like experience more stuff and I want to be like in a bunch of different buckets, you know? Mm-hmm. And I want to see, I just want to see stuff. And I, I think sort of thinking about Gumroad, like it's not my end goal, like it is a means to other things. Um, I think gives me a little bit more um, of like freedom to do that, right? Where I can say, hey, like I, I am interested in animation. Can I like put 10, 20, or can I try to raise a syndicate to fund, uh, you know, a project that will teach me about this market or this set of consumer behaviors or Netflix as a company, you know, Mm. because I think that's, it's so important. I think as like to be equipped with knowledge and being so proactive, like you, I think you can do that about a couple things, but I think just being in a place where you're just seeing stuff, you're hearing stuff, you're meeting people that you normally wouldn't meet with. Like to me, that can create really cool opportunities too. Uh, I don't know what those things are necessarily. Um, but I think moving to Provo, Utah, which felt reactive to me, ended up being totally worth it. And I learned a ton about people that had very different faith systems than I had, that thought about money in a very different way, that gave me this perspective. And I think the thing with being proactive is you typically you're just doubling down, right? You have a set of beliefs and you're using that to inform the decisions you're making, which are typically going to just reinforce those belief systems that you already have. Whereas when you're reactive, you're kind of telling, you're kind of saying, hey, tell me what to believe right? Mm -hmm. Tell me that animation is an interesting thing I should be working on. Tell me that I should move to Provo, Utah. Tell me that I should become Christian or I should not become Christian or whatever, whatever it it is, you know? And it just, I think I don't really have a point, you know, like when I wrote that essay, I really didn't have a point. And I think that's kind of what people liked about it, you know? Yeah. Uh, It wasn't, it didn't. I mean, the title says it all too, reflecting on, you know, it's not like, yeah, you know, how to, how to not build a billion dollar company. Mm-hmm. Now that would have been a, a how to, for example. 
Exactly. Yeah. And that actually was one of the titles that I was thinking about. Yeah. And I ended up with this very, uh, yeah, how not to build a billion dollar company. I just thought it was, it was a little too tongue in cheek where I was like, I don't know if people will get the joke of it almost. Yeah. But yeah, I like the idea that I'm just like relaying a set of experiences. Um, I wrote this other article about moving from San Francisco to Provo, Utah, which is the most conservative city in America, over a hundred thousand people called from bubble to bubble. And they're sort of like explicitly not trying to say like, this is what you should believe. Yeah. But then with the book, it's actually the opposite, right? Which is typically if you're writing a book, you know, 50, 65,000 words, 300 pages, you know, you're trying to be a New York Times bestseller or whatever. You want to make a point. You want it to be controversial. You sort of want to make, you want to say something that actually like maybe 30% of people believe or 10% of people believe because that's how you get, you know, on TV or whatever you need to do to, to hit the list. And so I'm reactive to that too. I'm like, okay, you know, like if you want me to make a point, like, let me try, you know? Like, what would my point be? But I think the, th- the stuff that works, I think the things that work about me, and I think why people latched onto that article and, and other things that I've done recently is because they feel like there's no point, you know? It's like the anti-point. It's like the anti-hero, you know? It's like you're not following this person because they think they're going to change the world. You're following this person because they're they're sort of actively not. Yeah. Counter-cultural, as we said before. It's, it's yeah. very, the lore to you, or at least the, you know, figurative view that's, perceived through what you share with the world is that uh, you're different in a way because you've been down the road to reflect on not building a billion dollar business and sharing the the road in which you took to get there Mm -hmm. and in some ways informing those attempting to or desiring to go down the same road or similar road Mm -hmm. about potential bumps and bruises along the way that they can anticipate Mm -hmm. and how that may or may not change their life like it's I think it's kind of just interesting that that you're so countercultural. I mean, mm-hmm. maybe we could even go into the whole move from San Francisco to Provo and, and yeah. how that was reactive. Like, I don't even understand how is that reactive? <laughs> it seems proactive. How is it reactive? Yeah. Well, I, it was, I think it was reactive in the sense that I, I was spending a lot of money in San Francisco. My landlord was about to increase the rent on me. Trump had just won the election and San Francisco kind of became this not super fun place to be. And it felt like everyone just was like very comfortable, even though like upset with the election. I think people were like, we're, we're on the right side of things. So we just have to wait it out, you know, sort of thing. And uh, to me that, you know, it just felt like why, like, that's not what, what, like, what am I learning basically from being here right now? Mm-hmm. Right. Besides like uh, watching my bank balance go down or whatever. And so that, that was reactive. I think in the sense where I'm like, I need to leave, you know? I, I think everything can be looked at probably in both lenses, right? Reactive, proactive. And then an author, a fantasy author that I really like. Um, so it's sort of in the meantime, as Gumrod was going through that slump, I had started trying to figure out what I could do to have goals that I could measure, things that I wanted to do for a long time but never could. And one of those things was writing fiction. And so I started writing a fantasy novel. Um, I wrote it, wrote, wrote a first draft. And I was working on like the second draft, I believe, at the time. And uh, a fantasy author that I love, this guy Brandon Sanderson, who lives in Provo, Utah, teaches a class at BYU, the local university, run by the LDS Church. And uh, I applied to it. You know, anyone could apply and get in, and you just have to move to Provo. And then I got an email saying, "Hey, you got in." Like I submitted the first chapter of my book, and then I was like, you know, they told me like, like you, we, you know, classes in two weeks. <laughs> uh, and I was like, okay, I guess I'm moving to Provo, Utah. <laughs> Okay, that, that is reactive then. <laughs> uh, and it was kind of, you know, what we were talking about before is like I kind of deferred the due diligence, right? I was like, I'll apply to this and then I'll do the due diligence um, to make sure it's a good decision. And then when it, when it came in, I was like, oh, I guess I'm going. 
you know, I kind of like in both senses, like, you know, decided that the decision was going to happen at a different point. And yeah, so that, that's really, you know, I put all my stuff in, you know, five suitcases, booked a flight and just got on the flight with a bunch of check-in baggage. And then I was in Provo, you know, which is funny because it feels like I was like, I was like leaving middle earth or something, but I was really just (laughs) taking a 50 minute flight (laughs) to, uh, you know, the, the two States over or something like that. But it is, it is kind of like a different world over here. Well, how long had you lived in San Francisco? I mean, cause that would make the mountain bigger for you given, you know, all that you'd done there or all that it meant to you, you know? Yeah. Six years, I think. Um, so significant. That's comfortability. I mean, six, six years at yeah. a place you're comfortable. Friends. Yeah, totally. Yeah. I mean, you know, I had a network, strong network there and, and yeah. people to hang out with and things like that. And people I was always meeting and stuff, but it was like, an, it was also just like, you know, like what was I in San Francisco? I was like the Gumroad founder. And like, it was such a vague thing because I didn't know, like, did you know about the layoffs? Did you not know about the layoffs? Like, did anyone really know what, what I was doing? And I just felt like I couldn't be open about any of that mm, stuff. Interesting. Um, And so like, yeah, I was kind of like living in Provo really f- reframed that for me where people would be like, what do you do? And I'm like, oh, literally I can say whatever, you know, yeah. <laughs> no one knows who I am. Is the, the general norm in the circles you ran in in San Francisco where was it like the normal MO was I'm building a startup and I'm raising venture capital. And so Sahel, since you're not doing that, you're kind of weird or you would be kind of weird or. Um, I think a lot of it was self-inflicted probably. Like, I don't think people it's honestly, I think the way to think about it is that those social circles exist sort of like came into existence because of sort of the transactional value of like investors meeting founders, founders meeting employees, et cetera. Right. And so it's just the way that it's set up is that if you're not doing that, it's just like not, it doesn't work for you. Like you don't get invited to the same stuff. Not because people don't. Yeah, you have to participate. Yeah. It's like people don't, it's not like, it's like, you know, going to an orgy or something and not doing anything. Right. Like it's just weird. I was going to say a dance, but sure. Orgy works too. Yeah. But, I mean, yeah, that's, that's, that's the San Francisco in me. Okay. <laughs> there you go. I mean, like if you, let's use my dance version just because we have some young sure. folks uh, listening to the show. You know, Listen you don't go to a dance and sit on the sidelines. You go there to dance, right? Well, at least yeah. maybe that's counterculture these days because nobody goes to dance these days, right? Like, when's the last time you yeah. danced? <laughs> that's true. Probably a while, right? Yeah, true. In that sense, yeah. But but either way, like if you're not participating in the you know in the yeah. event, the dance, you know, several people yeah. dancing, whatever, then you're kind of yeah. like the weird on the outskirts. Think of it like a high school dance or something. Yeah. Like Totally. Yeah. Yeah. Or it's like you're at, you're the stranger at the wedding or something, right? Like you're just there like chilling out doing whatever, but like, you know, you're like, why are you there? Like mm-hmm. people, you're there to meet people, talk to people. I don't know. And so if you're not doing that, um, and you can't really participate in those conversations even, right? Because it's like, what do you even say? It's like, Oh, like, how's it going with your startup? And I'm like, Oh, I'm just like writing a fantasy novel. They're like, okay, like, what do you, yeah, I mean, like, what do you do to that? You're not even you know? interesting to them, you know, cause you can't really give them anything theoretically. Yeah, and, and and they're primed for a specific type of conversation too, right? Like yeah. when you go into this stuff, you're like, you know, you just came from work. You're going to go to work tomorrow. You're going to, you're probably going to answer some emails when you get home tonight, right? So like you're in that context. And when people like penetrate it, it just feels, it's just like wrong, you know? Yeah. It's like, it's like if you go to church and, and you come up in shorts, like technically there's nothing wrong with it. And actually there's very much a culture of like being accepting to everybody, right? Um, hopefully. But it's still weird. Like it's still sort of an unwritten thing that like if you're not sort of somewhat formally dressed up, if you come in like, you know, wearing a tank top, like it's noticeable, right? right. And just being in any in any sort of homogenous culture, it, it just inherently 
happens. Like it doesn't have to be forced or intentful. If you're 1% of people, like if you're the only brown person in the room, which I often am, I mean, basically all the time, I might be the only brown person in like a two mile radius right now. It's, it's sort of why, you know, people complain about be, people that say they're colorblind, right? It's like, well, you just can't be like, we just, you have to be at such a like level, like a state of Zen to like look past that because it's just noticeable. And I think it's the same with, with these sort of startup things. And I think I can totally go um, to the, you know, the first round sort of CEO summit. I can show up at the dinners. Like, I think everyone still likes me, knows me, respects me, but it's kind of like, why are you here? You know, like, yeah, you're not are playing you the here? game, you know, the way we're playing the game. So. You're playing by different roles. Yeah, and I really think it's not out of malice at all, you know? No. And I and a lot of these people I will hang out with and have and talk to sort of at you know at a coffee shop or something because these things are interesting to them. Yeah. But in the context of like a social dinner, for example, it's like we're learning about how to grow a team from twenty to two hundred. Like, why are we here? Yeah. You know? So it is interesting. Well, good for you though to have the the wisdom to to see that. Like we we got on that that story from the reactive moments of San Francisco to Provo and, you know, good for you to be hyper aware. I would would say even self-awareness is a big thing people are not that keen in on. Mm -hmm. And that kind of stems from the whole brain science show and being more aware of like different things we are aware of. So like if you just see. Well, it's almost like, just sorry to interrupt, but like to me, it's self-awareness is almost a misnomer really, really, right? Because like what you're, I feel like you're always aware relatively of yourself. But I think it's it's really it's like monkey brain awareness, you know? Yeah. Um, or like awareness of the situation, awareness of other people. That is kind of what we refer to, I think, a little bit as self-awareness. Honestly, I'm interested. I haven't been back to San Francisco since I visited like the week before that article came out. And so I'm actually interested to go back and just see like how my conversations with people, how my meetings with people, you know, every time I go to San Francisco, I tweet like, hey, I'm going to be in San Francisco. Um, like how all of those who reaches out, you know, Yeah. it'll be I don't know. I'm, it's going to be reactive. I, I, I'll basically probably say yes to every single meeting and just see see what people. Because uh, I know every, basically everyone has read the article, sort of like has a relationship with me that I it's like one sided almost at this point. A lot of people, at least, right? So yeah. it'll be interesting for sure. Well, the the awareness thing, though, and it's okay to interrupt. I I love that. That's what I love about this show is that it's not about me talking. It's not about you talking. It's just about <laughs> what can come out. I, I think this is. To use your words, this show is a very reactive show. Like I don't, I come mm-hmm. in with some version of an outline, and some mm-hmm. desire to talk about certain things. But you know what, man, I, I prefer to have a conversation that nurtures the listeners in a way that shares different perspectives than simply like, "Hey, you subscribe to Founders Talk because you want to hear how mm-hmm. to grow your team from zero to two hundred. <laughs> you know, like no, I I think yeah. we bounce around and for purpose, like. I want to talk to everyone, not just people mm-hmm. who agree with me or I agree with or look like me or smell like me or whatever. Smell's probably an mm-hmm. interesting uh, variation of that. <laughs> Sorry about that one. But, you know, I don't smell. Maybe somebody smells. Maybe you smell. I don't know. <laughs> I'm off that joke. But you get what I'm trying to say. Like, it's very reactive. Like, I love that about yeah. it, you know. But yeah, And, and totally. I think maybe that's me showing that I'm hyper aware of me. I, I, I want, I want mm-hmm. to uh, I want to do a show that people really find interesting, you know. Mm-hmm. But... Um, Coming from the the transitory, you mentioned so you didn't dig into that piece though. What's transitory mean to you? Mm. Yeah, I mean, it, transitory basically means I don't know where I'll be in a year. Similar to like when I knew I was moving to Provo, but I didn't know anything really beyond that, like what I'd be doing in Provo, where I'd live. Um, you know, I I basically did no research because I basically didn't have any time to do it. Is it like you don't have a plan? 
Is that what you mean by yeah, that? Yeah, I think that's a, I think that, yeah, I, I don't have a plan. I don't have a roadmap. I do have goals, but they're very loose goals. Um, and there, there's a lot of freedom in the goals, right? Like mm-hmm. the, there's, uh, there's, there's goals that I can get done in t- with 10% of my time. And so like, what's the other 90%? Um, and I want to spend sort of more specifically to answer the question. I want to spend probably three or four months in LA this year. Uh, and then I'm moving to Portland at the end of the year. My girlfriend just got a job at an animation studio out there. And, I'm, you know, I'll do trips to New York and SF this uh, summer and stuff. You know, and I have this book deal that I'm thinking about. I'm still running Gumroad. And beyond that, I'm like, I'm open. You know, I still have time in my mm-hmm. life. I still have probably 20, 30 hours a week of time. And I have this sort of like new serendipity factor, whereas because of the article and because of sort of my new Twitter, sort of the algorithm has just sort of like loved me recently for some reason. It sort of allowed me to like meet these people that I normally wouldn't have had a chance to meet with. And so I'm just sort of like, I'll meet with everybody. I will remain as accessible as possible within sanity and then see if there are cool opportunities and uh, just be open, like have the space to be open to those things, I guess. Where are things going to happen? What, what do you anticipate? Or do you, do you not anticipate anymore? I really don't. Yeah. I mean, I have these like sort of these broad goals, as I mentioned, like I really want to work on an entertainment project, um, a visual entertainment project, either a short film, a movie, a Netflix show, a Hollywood blockbuster, an independent film. I think there's something really interesting with video, VR, AR, Netflix, HBO, Apple. Yeah. Never, it's never been a better time to make content and to, to consume content, therefore. And I would love to be a part of that. I don't know what that looks like. I'm learning how to paint and write, which sort of have sort of are tangential to that. They're necessary components of making a movie, for example. You need to write the script. You need to paint the layouts and, and, and figure out the character designs and costume designs, et cetera. And through Gumroad, actually, Gumroad is like a really interesting thing, too, because it exposes me to all these creative industries, too, right? We have all these creators that use the, the platform. And so I can actually like, you know, instead of sort of just research on Wikipedia, like what the animation process looks like, I can email, you know, the guy who did uh, all the 3D models for Spider-Verse and be like, hey, uh, you don't know who I am, but like I help you make a bunch of money on the internet. <laughs> I, uh, I'm going to be in LA. I am interested in animation and I have a little bit of money and I have rich friends that have a lot more money than I do. And I'd love to hang out and just talk you know, through if you have any cool projects or like I would think about how you would tell me to think about this problem of like making something uh, in entertainment. And the great thing is like, you know, I have enough competence um, because of that first mountain, right? That, that uh, most people will say, sure, like let's have lunch when you're in town, right? And so I don't know what will happen with that lunch. You might say, hey, I have this project. I need $50,000. Go get it and we can make something. Um, or he might say like, it's not possible. You need to learn these skills and come back in 10 years. But to me, it's, it's the, the North Star is I want to make something. Um, I wa- I, really, ultimately, I want to direct a billion-dollar movie in Before I Die, basically, is how I think about it. Like a Jurassic Park Matrix sort of style movie. And th- you know, I want to think about what I need to learn now in order to be ready for that in 30 years. And, and I know I need to learn that at some point in the next five years, right? Like in terms of, I need to make something, um, in order, you know, you can look at the Wikipedia profiles of a lot of these people and sort of see, Oh, this is what they were doing, you know, in their thirties or 30 years ago or whatever, in order to be in this position now. So you can kind of, kind of reverse engineer it a little bit. And so in that sense, I am proactive, right? Like I'm setting myself up for, I would say I'm proactive, but not targeted, maybe, right? Like, I'm not specific about the idea. 
Um, I kind of want, if someone, I really want someone to be like, hey, I'm an amazing artist. I want to, I have this project. Please help me make it a thing. And I'll be like, cool, I can do that. I know how to do that. So that's kind of, that's, that's what I mean by transitory, I guess. This episode is brought to you by Discover.Bot. Learn everything there is to know about bots at discover.bot slash founders talk. Discover.Bot was built by Amazon Registry Services as an online community for bot creators and makers of all skill levels to learn from one another, to share stories, and they regularly publish guides and resources to answer questions like how to set up payments to your bot, how to stop shopping cart abandonment, what KPIs are worth measuring, how to write an engaging chat bot dialogue. You can even register .bot domains there. Learn more and explore this huge library of bot resources at Discover.Bot. Again, it seems like you're playing the long game in the fact that you're willing to and, de and even desire to gain the necessary skill set to play that kind of that kind of game so to speak you know mm -hmm. i mean you mentioned uh spider-verse which was just amazing uh in mm -hmm. visually i mean i've i've never seen that kind of comic slash film slash animation in a single take ever i mean it's just phenomenal so yeah it's insane visually very phenomenal and uh very different than any other spider-man type thing that's been in film mm -hmm. you know true yeah Totally. And I, I think, I think you said it well, like there was a long-term focus instead of a short-term focus, which is very similar to Gumroad, right? And yeah. how I think about like, we, we can't compete. Everyone is most venture funded startups are competing on a short-term basis, right? Because their metrics need to be short-term, their milestones are short-term and sort of a, you know, 18 month sort of cycle, let's say, um, or quarterly cycle and sort of internally to the company. And I don't have to operate on that. Right. And so if I'm okay with a longer time scale, like what, what opportunities were off the table that are now on the table, right? Because if I wanted to make a movie, like short term is not the way to do it, right? Yeah. Like you can learn how to code and, and, and make six figures in a year. You cannot learn how to paint and make six figures in a decade. So if you, if you, if, you know, that, that short term thinking is limiting in, in, in certain ways, right? Um, and so like, what can I do with that? This kind of reminds me to some degree of Jeff Bezos, because mm -hmm. I think the reason why Amazon was always this weird company to people up until, say, maybe five or six years ago when they started to be like, wow, they're really kicking some major butt, mm -hmm. you know, was this whole idea of Jeff Bezos having this long-term vision, even back yeah. to investors. Like, it's not about profits today. It's about owning the market. Yeah, totally. You know, and so if – I don't know how much you subscribe to that idea. What do you think? Yeah, I mean, it's it's fascinating because as I've been researching this sort of for this book – it's funny because some of the best examples of this mindset, I think, is our billion dollar companies, frankly, right? So I don't think it's mutually exclusive. I think in the context of that essay, it, it, it sort of was. Um, but I think, yeah, I think you can totally take this mindset and apply it like pretty, pretty broadly, right? So the famous one, I think, sort of pre-Bezos uh, um, was uh, Henry Ford, you know, and the Ford Motor Company. That's right. You mentioned that before, the faster horse. The faster horse, yeah. Um, you can sort of think, you can sort of like probably reverse engineer the type of book I'm trying to write from the references on a music. But, you know, like uh, 
he there's this famous case that I think it's the Michigan Supreme Court uh, sort of versus uh, Henry Ford, where he sort of made this announcement where he wanted to cut car prices. Right, they were like sort of super profitable. They were going to pay employees more and, and and charge less. And the sort of the shareholders, the investors in the company, like sued him. Said you can't do this. Like the the role of a company, the role of your job as CEO is to maximize shareholder value, right? You hear that sort of that phrase all the time, maximize shareholder value. And it's true. I mean, that is legally in America what you have to do. You cannot not do that. You can get sued like Henry was sued and lose like he lost. And sort of today, if you have a corporation, right, a C Corp, an S Corp, like your fiduciary responsibility is to your investors first. Um, The reason that maybe we got through it, right? Like we were able to sort of say, we're going to build for customers first and then uh, investors or what have you is because we didn't get sued, right? Like who knows what would have happened if investors right. were really concerned about that, right? Well, not everybody pushes the button, right? Everybody has access to a exactly. button. Totally. Not everybody pushes 100%. It. Yeah. And so with Bezos, I think with Amazon, I think it's interesting because he, he has a similar mindset, I would say, the faster horse thing. He always says like, look, we know exactly what we're going to be doing in 10 years. We're going to be dropping prices. We're going to be shipping faster. We're going to have more inventory. Like it's not that complicated. Like stop focusing on the things we shouldn't wait, like that we don't know about and like just do the things we already do better. Those are sort of like the, his sort of his ethos, right? Yeah. Um, and even when, when you think about the Alexa and things like that, like it's really all about Kindle, et cetera. It's, it's, I think it's still sort of core to that vision. But he's been, you know, most valuable company on planet Earth. Maybe, I don't know. It depends on the month, I guess. But yeah, so I think I think it's it's a mindset, that, and I agree with it, right? I, I I don't think they are mutually exclusive at this point. Like I think you can totally build, um, as sort of an Amazon by just this ultra relentless focus uh, on the customer. But I do think you end up with issues, right? You just have to acknowledge that, like, look, like there are a lot of Amazon employees that are pissed off, that are frustrated, that are uh, peeing in cups in a warehouse because they can't take bathroom breaks or whatever. And I think you have to understand that, like Amazon lives in a broader world that is increasingly sort of concerned about quote unquote late stage capitalism, uh, billionaires, you know, uh, income inequality, these sort of like very prevalent issues in our time. And how does Amazon fit into that? Right. Because I think at the end of the day, like you want to be loved. Right. And I think even though Jeff Bezos executes on everything, I think the thing that Bezos and, and, and Dorsey share, and maybe this is just what happens when you become rich, but like people don't really like those people that much, you know? And how do you do those things? How do you fulfill like the customer's needs and still be loved? Because I think that is a, sort of an essential component. And Bill Gates for, for me is still sort of an all-time hero for me. Like he does that, right? Like people love Bill Gates because he's running this amazing foundation, like the largest, I think, in the world. I think he employs more people today than he did ever at Microsoft uh, through it, you know? And so he made the leap, right? Um, he is relentlessly focused on the cu- customer. He doesn't give a shit about profits or revenues sorry for swearing and so yeah i think i think there are different attitudes i my guess is that bezos will probably at some point have a similar realization to, to bill gates i think most people that's sort of you know bill gates is on his second mountain right and uh, and and bezos is still on his first and jobs died before he you know before he had the opportunity so yeah i don't know i don't i don't really have an answer for you um but i think it's interesting to think about i think what's interesting is how you've said for Bill Gates, and I agree with Bill Gates, you know, you're him being a hero to you as well. He used, maybe he didn't, I don't know if this is true, but it, it would seem to be the truth that he used Microsoft similar to the way you're using Gumroad to, as a transitory, as you've said, or to, mm-hmm. to your leap, your leap pad, so to speak, to the next thing. You know, not so much like bailing on Gumroad, but more like 
now that it's in a state where you have full control mm-hmm. and no one telling you, hey, Sahil, you got to you got to 10x this thing, man. We mean mm-hmm. shareholder value, this, you know, whatever fiduciary responsibility that gets pushed on mm-hmm. um, someone in your position. You now can say, how can Gumroad be used to serve mm-hmm. rather than to serve me? Rather than serve me, how can I serve the creators? Can you talk about? Yeah. It sounds like maybe it's Provo, maybe it's Mormons, maybe it's Christians near you that's kind of giving you the servant kind of idea. Is that is that true? Yeah, I'm. I, honestly, I think that's a great phrase. I love uh, I love the term servant. It's one of my favorite words that I've sort of re-stumbled upon. And I think the difference between servant and slave, I think at least in the way that I think about those two words, is that being a servant is a choice, right? It's an agency-led choice. And so I love that word. I think it's like this idea that you are doing something like for someone else because you choose to and you're making their life better because you want to. Um, I think that's, that is totally how I think about Gumroad right now. It is a, it is a vessel. It is a servant. Um, like how can I serve creators? How can I help the world? And how can I do it in a way that is truly selfless? Um, obviously like as any Christian, I think would tell you like it's impossible, right? Um, you can't be a hundred percent. There's only one person on planet earth that has ever done that right in, in Christian doctrine, um, which is Jesus Christ. Uh, and so, I think it's a great mentality. I think I think that's one th- one thing I love about um, whether it's sort of the LDS faith or any Christian denomination, and really a lot of other faiths too. I think is that you have this uh, north star in a sense, right? Like you have an ideal, right? And sort of acknowledging that you will fail to achieve the ideal, but you can at least try. Mm-hmm. And to me, that's that's super, super, super appealing. Um, and if you really think about, I mean, I don't, I don't, I don't think I will ever be a Jesus Christ level figure, right? But if you really think about it, like our zeitgeist is sort of dominated, even just like this conversation, right, is dominated by people like Bill Gates uh, and Steve Jobs and Jeff Bezos, right? But if you really think about sort of impact, like true impact, whether you believe like Jesus was God or sort of his only begotten son or anything like that, like you can't really deny that like the impact that he had on the world is much greater than anything Bill Gates has done even, right? And so... So I don't think it's more a, songs, more books, more studies have been done about him than anybody else ever in the history. Of ever, time. ever. Totally, totally. And obviously he had a little bit of a head start. But yeah, I think it's it's true. I think there's there's sort of like this profound difference, right? This like order of magnitude difference, 100,000 X difference between those two people's impacts. And so I think when people look at Gumroad and I think they say, oh, it's a lifestyle business, it's like minimal. I don't disagree, but I also think like, I mean, how much was Jesus worth, right? Like how much... You know, I talk about in the essay, I mentioned this idea and it came from Bill Gates, this idea that like there's a difference between capturing value and creating value. Right. And companies can typically only capture like a certain percentage of of the value they create. Right. Which is their revenues. And some companies are really good. If you're building an enterprise sales product, you might be able to capture 30, 40 percent of the revenue that you're generating for people. Gumroad captures much, much, much less than that as a sort of a payments company or an e-commerce company or a marketplace or whatever, whatever the designation for it is. And like you look at at figures like Jesus, for example, like zero is probably closer to the to the number of value they quote unquote captured. And but the impact is still massive, right? And and so I think it's just like a difference in focus, right? So I'm I'm more interested in in creating an insane amount of value, like a hundred, a thousand times the revenue that we're doing in value. Um, and what does what does what does a company that that does that look like? It's not a very great capital investment for an investor. I would not go to a venture capitalist and say, hey like give me 10 million dollars um i can turn it into five million dollars 
but generate a ton of value for other people. Like does, that doesn't really work. Yeah. The servant aspect is pretty interesting because that's a, that's certainly an aspect that, uh, that we have here as well. at change like, like we exist to serve the software world, I suppose, you know, uh, software creators, software makers, the world of software, uh, developers, you know, we, we exist and these, these types of shows we, we produce exist to inspire and inform, you know, and we're here to, in any way we can serve the future of software because I wouldn't say any way we can, but the people, you know, not so much the software itself, but the people of software, because that's our desires to be, is to have a servant's heart and to, mm-hmm. that's also why I think we've never really pursued venture capital or you know, anything like that, where we, we could easily, you know, similar to you, we have rich friends as well. You know, we could always mm-hmm. call somebody and say, Hey, you know, we've got this idea, we've got these things, you know, whatever we choose to maintain a servant posture and then also a lifestyle business approach. And I guess the one, if I'm being honest, the one fear I have, and this, maybe this can uh, dovetail into something you can share is the market forcing us to change, right? Because mm-hmm. you'd mentioned before competitors and, you know, how because you operated in a certain countercultural way, you sort of forced change, you said before. Mm-hmm. And I wonder if f- change will ever be forced on us to be, you know, to step out of this lifestyle business or quit. Yeah. Kind of thing. You know what I mean? What, what do you think about that? That idea? Yeah. I mean, I think that's accurate. Um, you know, like the average life of even a large company is 30 years, you know. Jeff Bezos said it himself. He's like, there's a good chance Amazon Amazon won't even be around in 50 years, 30 years. Mm-hmm. It's sort of built into the sort of the model. And I think part of it is you have to separate yourself from the business, right? Like you have to say like, I'm greater or at least different than this thing that I've built. And that's kind of how I think about Gummer now is that like, I'll, you know, I would love for it to be around forever, but certainly I'm not going to be around forever anyways, right? And so I think... I don't know. I think it's interesting. Yeah, that's definitely a thing that I have to think about more is this idea that like, is this possible, right? I think part of it is like, it's probably not. I think there are probably certain opportunities that cannot be captured by a countercultural quote unquote startup like Gumroad, right? Like you can't ship super, super fast. You can't when you don't have venture capital to raise money, et cetera, right? And I think I'm sure there are companies that try to compete with us that were bootstrapped that failed. Uh, I know that they were, right? And so they might say, that's not fair. Like you're, you're sort of like, talking about sides of your mouth, which I don't think is totally inaccurate. I am I am doing that. I just am trying to do that openly, right? And be sort of self-aware about it. But I do think there are probably a lot of opportunities that don't have those issues. I think probably most businesses in America and maybe the world have been around for a long time, you know, especially if you go, you know, sort of you leave the coasts, you know, you have restaurants that have been around for 40, 50, 60 years. There's a company in Utah, uh, Winder Farms, that's, I think, something like 180 years old or something like that. Wow. It's like unheard of these days. If you meet a company that <laughs> the established date is like past the 90s, you're like, whoa. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. It's it's weird. Right? You know what I mean? Like you, it's almost like a double take. Yeah, totally. It is. It's like a startup that, you know, launched in before 2002 or something. Yeah. Yeah. But I, but I think it's, you know, it's, I think it's a, it's a framing thing, right? It's just like, well, typically those companies are not that interesting, right? And at least they're not, literally, they're not timely anymore. And news is timely. And so they're, they're not going to be in the news. They're not going to be seen. And so I think part of it is just like sort of trying to broaden your point of view and seeing actually there are a lot of companies that don't have these issues. I think people, there's this sort of like rhetoric, sort of the Peter Thiel zero to one rhetoric of like, you need to, uh, conquer the market, right? Because there's one winner, there's one Facebook, there's one Uber, et cetera. 
But really, when you look at, I think, the broader world, like, sure, if you're trying to build a billion dollar company, like, yeah, you might run into some more of those things. But if you're not, I mean, there's plenty of opportunity. And actually, I think with with being so transparent about Gumroad, we're sort of signaling to everybody, like, look, it's not that big. Like, don't try to compete with us. Like, go solve another problem. If you really want to build a big business, like, don't worry about this one, you know? Yeah. And I think that's happened. I've had people reach out to me that are like, wow, I had no idea. Like, the creative market is so small. I'm like, it is. It really is that. It's like, I'm not saying it's tiny. Like, certainly there are companies doing well. But if you think about, there are only really two platforms that are sort of considered billion-dollar companies that are sort of built upon serving creators, which are basically YouTube and Instagram, you know? They're not doing any commerce because they can't monetize. Like they would not be. I mean, now they are. Instagram is a little bit. But really, if you're trying to monetize content for creators, maybe Spotify, you know? Yeah, arguably, too, YouTube and Instagram stumbled into those businesses. Totally. It's not even the thing that they do, right. you know? Like the number one use case for YouTube is music videos, right? Um, and advertising. They're all advertising dominated anyways. And before that, it was sort of user-generated content. It was, you know, the word creator didn't even exist back then. Yeah, it's, it's, it's a pretty fascinating sort of topic for discussion. Let's go back to the idea of conquering. You'd mentioned Peter Thiel and having to conquer and own a market. Mm-hmm. And it, I've always kind of camped on this phrase that sort of describes our DNA, at least, is that you don't go around building a nice city by knocking people's buildings down. Mm-hmm. You know what I mean? So I get that in capitalism to be a winner, you know, for every Uber, there is a Lyft, for example. Mm-hmm. And at some point, one of those two brands will be the quote unquote winner. Maybe they can coexist. I don't know. But the point is, is that I don't feel like it's my job or my duty to build this business. Mm-hmm. And I kind of feel like maybe you feel the same way with Gumroad that it's not your business to go knock on people's buildings down. Yeah. Instead, I want to come by and I want to say, hey, good to see you, buddy. Your street lights out. Can I fix that for you? Can I help you pave your roads better? Can I nurture your community better? Can I help you be happier in your life? to serve this community in positive ways. That's mm-hmm. that's my perspective. What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I, I agree. I think most change, especially sort of living in SF and then Provo, like sort of, I think I've come to the realization a little bit that like typically change happens at a micro level, right? Mm-hmm. It, it happens at a sort of a community by community basis. And like typically like a group of people or one person like enforcing their view over a large chunk of the population that is much more diverse than they are. It typically doesn't work super well. It's not super long-term sustainable anyways. And so Charles from, from Kickstarter, one of the co-founders of Kickstarter I was talking to, he has a really great phrase. Um, he calls it like the main street startup. Like he wants to create Kickstarter sort of and Gumroad and other companies. I think we're trying to create more main street businesses, you know, and the main street doesn't exist really in, in New York, right? Um, or Tokyo or San Francisco. But if you look at sort of population by population basis, like most people have like their local main street, their local businesses that they go to. Mm-hmm. Um, their communities, the word, you know, the word typically used is a community, right? Where everyone knows each other. To me, that's sort of like the definition of a community and it's great. And there are networks, networks connect communities, but I think you need both. Uh, and I think if all you have are people that are trying to build a network, all you do is you end up with Walmarts. Um, you don't end up with anything really, really cool. And I think the way that people think about their lives, um, typically Walmart is great, but if they don't think about their, when they, when they sort of on the deathbed or whatever, they're not like, I'm so glad that like Walmart exists, even though I'm sure Walmart had a positive effect on their life. I think, I think they're going to sort of remember like the community moments, right? Like the, the neighborhood coffee shop or the flower shop or the, any of the, you know, the artists nearby. Real connections. Yeah. The connections, the human, human connections and, and human connections are, are not scalable at all there. You can only have so many of them, whether you think that's five or 150 
And really all software does, anything we've ever done since uh, cave paintings has been to sort of like help people connect in a very non-scalable way, right? Like I, I always tell people like that at the end of the day, like the reason you're friends with people on the internet is because you want to be friends with them in real life. And if there's that, not that chance, like you're probably not going to be friends with them, you know, cause like humans still crave that. That's still the goal for a lot of these relationships is to eventually connect with them, you know, in a visceral primal way, which you can only do at least for now in person. Let's close with Gumroad. What can we expect from, you know, since this, the, the underlying current of everything we've talked about is, is Gumroad, right? It is your, yeah. it is your platform that gives you the financial independence and, Mm-hmm. the extra 30 hours a week to focus on a fiction novel or to travel or to move to Portland and, and just say yes to unique reactive things. What, what's the next stages for Gumroad for the creators that you're serving? Yeah. I mean, sort of on a very sort of feature by feature basis, like we're, we're really excited about discovery and really launching uh, discovery features on Gumroad to sort of allow creators to build their audiences. We're working on, redesigning all our sort of core UI, like our edit flow and create product creation flow and things like that. And then probably later this year, we'll try to launch like a, a more full featured Kickstarter sort of feature set. So people will be able to create membership businesses. But really the goal, I mean, you can tell sort of when I talk about these things, like I'm not that excited about the features, you know, I'm excited about like what can creators do if they have more opportunities to get paid. And I think the, the way that I, the minor star for, for Gumroad in, in a product sense is like Gumroad gives me this financial independence, right? It gives me this monthly salary. I get to do all this stuff. It's awesome. How do I take that and give it to creators, right? How do creators get independent financially? Um, how do creators uh, have 30 hours a week to do what they want to do? Right. Like how do like this life that I have is pretty nice, I think. Um, and I think more people uh, would appreciate having it. And how does Gumroad give it to them? Right. How does Gumroad give it to thousands and thousands of people so that more people can sort of do what I'm doing and have the impact that I'm having? And sort of that ripple effect will sort of continue you know, onwards. Yeah. Well, that's awesome. I, I'm you know, we'd mentioned, uh, I guess, somewhat in the prequel. This is the first time we've ever talked, I think, ever in real life. I've known of you. <laughs> For ages, I think we've tweeted at one another at some point in our lives, maybe even the end if I was cool enough. That's, that's <laughs> just a joke. Uh, maybe if you were cool <laughs> enough. But it's it's so cool to finally like catch up with you. And it's it's interesting to actually have caught up with you after, you know, you, you've transitioned into this transitory reactive state versus before. Like I had I talked to the Sahil, you know, three years ago or whatever. Yeah. Not so much a different person, but different perspectives and I'm, I'm totally. thankful that you've gone through the journey you have. And we finally had this conversation now rather than a few years ago, because I think it, it's, we had a very much different conversation than uh, one I anticipated and two that I think we would have had a couple of years ago. So I'm appreciative of, of your perspective and I'm thankful you shared that at length article on medium. We're going to link up in the show notes, of course. Yeah, man, I'm so excited to, to have you on the show and thanks for sharing your wisdom and being honest. Well, thanks so much for having me, Adam. I really appreciate it. It was super, super fun. All right. Thank you for tuning into this episode of Founders Talk. If you enjoyed this show, do me a favor. Go to iTunes, Apple Podcasts, Overcast, whatever you're using. Favorite it. Leave us a rating or review. If you tweet, tweet a link to a friend. And of course, thank you to our sponsors, Linode and Discover.bot. Also, thanks to Fastly, our bandwidth partner. Head to Fastly.com to learn more. And we're able to move fast and fix things around here at ChangeLog because of Rollbar. Check them out at Rollbar.com. 
and we're hosted on Linode Cloud Servers at the linode.com slash changelog. Support this show. Music is by the one and only Breakmaster Cylinder. And if you want to hear more shows like this, subscribe to our master feed. It's awesome. Check it out at changelog.com slash master or go into your podcast app and search for Changelog Master. You'll find it. Subscribe. Get all of our shows in one single feed as well as some extras that only hit the master feed. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again soon.